0: you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host
1: if you go cycle around the world knowing it's going to take well my estimate was three to ten years so knowing that you're not really going on a trip you're just changing your life
2: Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of Terra Incognita, the adventure podcast. It feels brilliant to finally be recording this um, after 18 months of putting it all together. And it's equally brilliant to be launching with Alistair Humphreys, who I've been talking to online in the way that we all do these days for a couple of years. Never really had the chance to meet up with him until a few months ago. And then recently we sat down together at Candle Mountain Festival in November Went and got a Chinese takeaway together, drank a little bit too much beer, and agreed to record this in his shed uh, near London. Al is the sort of man who needs little introduction. He's something of a household name in the adventure scene. He was named uh, National Geographic's Adventurer of the Year. He cycled around the world, he walked across India, and he busked his way across uh, Spain playing the violin. He's also the pioneering vision behind micro-adventures. And amongst all of that, he also finds time to uh, write books and make films. But before we hear from Al, I wanted to say a huge thank you to Firepot Food, who have supported us throughout the launch of this podcast. Firepot are a a brilliant young company um, built on an ethos of kind of honesty and integrity. And um, the expedition and freeze-dried food market is a tricky one to navigate, but Firepot really sort of lead the charge when it comes to high-quality, environmentally-conscious dehydrated meals. They actively avoid using palm oil, have no artificial ingredients, and they use compostable packaging. The food has really low quantities of salt and sugar, and is cooked by hand in Dorset. I use Firepot personally, and know that Ben Saunders, Walder Weatherington, and Leo Holding all use it on Expedition, and it's used by many of Britain's leading adventurers. We're really proud to be working closely with them, and if you'd like to give it a try, there's a discount code in the show notes on the adventurepodcast.co.uk. Right, over to Al.
1: My earliest memory of adventure will be doing the Yorkshire Three Peaks, uh, which I did when I was nine years old. Um, It was a school thing. Basically everyone in my school was sent off to go do it. Um, Because everyone was doing it, it didn't seem weird for a nine-year-old to go walk 20 miles over rough country. Um, And that just got me into doing outdoorsy stuff really. Um, But in terms of getting into adventure and expeditions. That really only happened when I was a, a student at university when I started to love travel writing, so reading books of expeditions and explorers and adventurers. And that's, that was when it sort of sowed the seeds of maybe I could actually go and do something big and different and difficult. Okay. Were you an adventurous child? I wasn't really an adventurous child. I'd say I was just normal, really. I mean, I grew up in the Yorkshire Dales, so I had a very outdoor I had a very outdoor childhood, but it wasn't particularly adventurous. I certainly wasn't a lunatic kid. I was a bit of a wimpy, dorky kid, uh, but I did spend a lot of time playing outside. I read
2: about Mike Ben Nevis and a rotisserie chicken. You know, can you tell me a little bit about some <laughs> of the um,
1: kind of earlier days or introductions to adventure? And okay, I went to uh, Edinburgh University, and in my first year there, a friend of mine, Mike. Uh, who grew up in Scotland? He spent quite a lot of time climbing lots of Munros. He took me and another guy, Johnny, off to go climb uh, Ben Nevis, but in the winter. So it was the first time I'd ever um, had an ice axe. It's the first time I'd ever camped on snow. We put our tent up near the top, um, and we were just. Well, I just absolutely loved it. Um, I particularly loved it because we also bought a one of those rotisserie chickens at the bottom. Uh, it's quite a posh purchase for uh, Fort William. Um, rotisserie chicken and then legged it up to the top. So it's still warm by the time we got there. So we had warm roast chicken on the top of Ben Nevis, sleeping on snow for the first time. It's a yeah, it was a good night. And actually, at university was where I really got into spending time in the hills. So I started doing 24-hour races and climbing big hills and just starting to enjoy suffering and being miserable and realising that I was quite good at that. I'd always felt, growing up, I'd always kind of had a bit of a chip on my shoulder. I wasn't very good at anything, really. I didn't really stand out at anything. And at university, when I discovered this of the world of endurance, that was something where finally I could have a more miserable time than other people. Okay. Where was the seed sown for your first big trip, in inverted commas? I think two things sowed the seed for my first big trip. One was between school and university, I went to, I spent a, a year in Africa teaching in a little village school in a really rural area so that really opened my eyes up to the world to just thinking wow there's a big exciting wild world out of England I want to go travel and see the world a lot more like a lot of young people do in that sort of age. The second thing that happened was what I've just said that at university I started to get into these physical challenges so I joined the the OTC like the Territorial Army and I really enjoyed the physical side of that. So then those two things came together, deciding that I wanted to travel and see the world, but I also wanted to do something that was tough and challenging. And that's when I came up with the idea of just starting to travel, but by bicycle rather than backpacking. And how did that manifest itself? Well, the, the so my first plan, first year at uni, was that I would, that summer I'd go cycle around Italy. That was my plan. It sounded quite exciting. And then I was in some boring maths lecture in Edinburgh University when a friend of mine, Rob, who's on the road behind me, passed a note forward saying, do you want to go cycle the Karakoram Highway in the summer? And I thought, wow, yes, yeah, I do. Uh, he was a friend of mine who was, at that stage, he was already more seasoned at adventures and expeditions. He took me on my first ever 100-mile bike ride, for example. We, uh, I had this bike that I'd bought from a police auction for £12, and the all the lecturers went on strike. So we decided to cycle to England to, for the day. So we cycled from Edinburgh to the English border. I was wearing uh, socks on my hands. I didn't have any gloves, it was snowing. Cycled all the way back. Um, so it, he got me into doing these sort of stupid things. And then that first summer, I went cycled from Pakistan to China. And after that, I was hooked on bike trips in exciting places. So next summer, I cycled with a friend from uh, Mexico to Panama. Um, next summer, my girlfriend got in the way and so we had to go together to do a charity uh, project for a few months in the Philippines and then the summer after that I managed to get back on the bike and cycled across South America with two guys and so this then had really sown the seeds that I knew that travelling by bike was a great way to see the world and then I decided that when I finished I wanted to go do something really big so I decided to try to cycle right the way around the world. So when did you leave? So I got to the end of my time at uni and I thought, I really want to go do an adventure, but I kind of need to sort out real life and proper jobs. So I thought, the sort of sensible job that crossed my mind was to be a teacher. So I thought, right, I'll apply to be a teacher. I don't really want to, I want to go on an adventure, but okay, I'll apply. So I made a deal, I'll only apply to Oxford and Cambridge, assuming they'd say no and then I could just go on my bike ride. But I got into Oxford. So I went and did my teacher training at Oxford. And the reason this is relevant is because round about... You get a teacher training, you get put in placement schools. And the um, the school I was at, I was really enjoying it. And the head teacher, he gave me a formal job offer while I was still a student. He said, we, you're doing a good job, please come teach this school. And I was really chuffed by that. And I quite liked the school. And I thought, wow, I could just get this job and that's the next 40 years of my life. Sorted, this is great. Things are going well. And I thought, oh no, this is it. This is the moment. If I don't go now, I will literally never go. So I wrote him a letter um, saying, Dear Mr. Walker, the fact that I remember it shows what sort of pivotal moment of my life it was. It was Thanks very much for the job offer. I'd love to teach here, it's a great school, but I've got to get out of here. I've got to hit the road and cycle around the world. And he wrote back saying, you've made the right decision. You should go do this. If you come back to teaching, let me know you'll be a better teacher for having done this journey. So I finished uh, there in the summer, Got myself ready and at the end of August set off to cycle around the world. So why do you think
2: Mr Walker thought that was the right decision? What was it about cycling around the world that seemed like a good
1: idea to both you and him? <laughs> yeah I think Mr Walker and I probably looked at it from slightly different perspectives but I think f- from his point of view uh, if I was a head teacher I would want my uh, the teachers in my school to have had a variety of experiences and I think seeing the world, being independent, seeing how different cultures operate, uh, getting different perspectives on life is gonna make you a better teacher. Uh, The reason I thought it was a good idea was just because I was too excited to not go and do it, really. Okay, Um, this
2: is too big a question and it's probably a conversation for another day, but how was the trip? (laughs) How was the trip? It was great, it was great. <laughs>
1: what did you get up to? You know <laughs> what went wrong. What were the highlights? What were the? Um, the thing about that trip that I think is quite in a trip like that compared to say a normal expedition is quite an interesting thing. Because if you go say I don't know climb K two, it's two months. You set off for two months. And think right, I've got to go climb this mountain. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be scary. Then I'll come home. If you go cycle around the world, knowing it's going to take well, my estimate was three to ten years. So knowing that, you're not really going on a trip, you're just changing your life. This is your life. So you have to do all the stuff that happens in a normal life. You have the ups and downs and highs and lows, but you're just doing it by being on the road. So in that sense, I felt that I had all of the highs and lows of normal life. I had happy times, sad times, boring times, but just on a much more extreme level than normal life. Um, The highs were way higher, the lows were far lower. And uh, and that, that emotional roller coaster of it was something I'd completely unprepared for, and was a far harder aspect than just sitting on a bike, cycling a long way, and going camping. Because once you've once you've ridden your bike for a few months, you're quite good at riding a bike, so you can cycle a long way. Once you've learned how to put up a tent, then you pretty much know everything there is to know about cycling around the world. So um, so it's my life on the road and it was an interesting thing because i was learning about myself being it was my first big trip by myself so there's a lot of learning going on there but also i was passing through all these different cultures and i was on the road when september the 11th happened for example and i was riding through the middle east in the months after that so it was a very interesting time to be experiencing the world so yeah It was, well, my long rumbling answer suggests I was on the road for four years and lots of things happened. What did you learn? (laughs) What I learned cycling around the world. I see that trip as being both the greatest blessing and greatest curse of my life, really. Um, I think had I not done that, had I accepted Mr. Walker's job offer to be a biology teacher in Oxford, my life since would have been far simpler, calmer, and probably happier. Um, but on the other hand it was just such a thrilling liberating experience it's like opening Pandora's box suddenly think wow the whole world is out there there's an infinite number of possibilities of what might happen and it's down to me to make these things happen so it completely changed my mindset for just grabbing life by the throat and giving it a good shake I learned that I was not nearly as a Tough and resilient and uh, self contained as I'd like to think I was during my brief nights of running around the Scottish hills. Um, but on the other hand, I learned that I was quite able to persevere with a long, difficult project. Um, so it made me much more confident about my capabilities and more ambitious with my goals, for my life. Um, and then what I learned. I think the main thing I learned about the world, really, was that it really, by and large, is a good, decent, kind place. And in the, the endless mayhem we see on the news from all over the world, that's a really, really powerful thing for me to constantly have in my head, that wherever these crazy things are happening or whatever crazy rulers are doing stuff, the normal people in normal places are just normal people like me. And that was a, it sounds a very trite thing, but it was a really, really powerful thing for just how I approach the world really yeah and what was coming home like in contrast coming home it was a strange thing because I set off from my front door in order to get back to my front door so from the moment I set off the goal was to get back home yet so I thought about that a lot I had to work really hard in my head to not make it the objective of the whole thing it would be pointless to spend four years in order to get to the finish line. But nonetheless, getting home was certainly a big thing that I'd been working towards. Um, it was a complete mixture of things, really. It was, it was a. I felt very proud. I felt I'd achieved something big and difficult for the first time in my life. Um, it was lovely to get back and see my family and friends. I hadn't seen my family for over four years, so I actually felt closer to them than I'd ever felt before. Um, and I was very happy for a while. I got home and thought, oh, it's great, I've cycled around the world, woohoo! But then you think, oh, I've cycled around the world, I'm 29, what am I going to do for the next 60 years? And that was an aspect of a big trip that I'd not given any thought to. And in the years since then, my friends who've gone off to do big expeditions, I think this is a, a constant factor of travel and expeditions that people really don't consider, is what happens afterwards and a lot of people are going off on big expeditions to either because they're running away from something or they're going away in order to try to solve some problem and then they go off and do some stupid thing climb a mountain go to the south pole cycle around the world get home and nothing has changed and uh, i think that's an aspect of travel that's a really hard thing for people to deal with bradley wiggins his desert island disc he talked about waking up the day after winning. I think it was a gold medal or the Tour de France won the two, just thinking, wow, well, I've done that. Nothing has changed. And I think that's an aspect that I totally underestimated. And that took me quite a few years to get over, I think. What was it that helped you get over it? Um, One of the problems with doing big, exciting, thrilling, adventurous stuff is that normal life then seems really quite boring and mundane and pointless And mediocre and it was much more exciting to be out there under the bright lights doing the thrilling exciting stuff and so that's what I was craving more of that more of that more of that however the other aspect to that is that when I was cycling around the world so four years of adventures in all these crazy wild places what I was really craving was normal life and friends and family and community and stability And I think that's where the curse comes in, because when I'm away on a trip, I realise that it's kind of stupid, and the important stuff is back home. And then when I'm back home, I think, oh, this is boring. I wish I was in a desert somewhere. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, which which means that to answer your question means I haven't answered your question. I don't think there's a solution to that. But that's why I think maybe I should have accepted Mr. Walker's job offer sometime. Is it too late to accept Mr Walker's job offer? It's definitely not too late to become a teacher or to settle to some sort of normal life. And for quite a few years, I did assume that at some point the adventures would stop, then I'd just become a teacher and get on with normal life. And that would be fine. However, as time passed, I started to actually make my living out of adventures. And I've now got to the point where I make a perfectly pleasant living by doing a few trips, writing a few books, doing a few talks. And... I love it. I really like it, and also it's so easy compared to like a proper job. Like being, like well, I do a lot of talks in schools. Like wow, they those guys. That is hard work, and I think I'm just too lazy now to get a proper job.
2: Yeah, I can relate
1: to that. Um... <laughs> the the problem another a problem with that though is that when your adventures become your job, you turn yourself into a golden goose. So you're only as interesting as the next egg you lay, the next adventure you do. And for many years now, I've been saying to myself, I don't want to be 60 years old and still have to go off and do something stupid just so I can come back and talk to a village hall of 50 people and sell 10 books. I really don't want to do that. Therefore, at some point, I have to change trajectory. But because I like what I'm doing right now, I never get around to making that change. Yeah, it's a poor motivation for a trip to be able to sell books. Yeah. And I've been to talks where elderly adventurers, people who've been heroes of mine, I just look at them and think, you're quite old, and that story's quite old, and you don't have as many people in the audience as you used to, and you're not selling many books. And I just think, I don't want to be that, but I. the reason that horrifies me is because that's exactly what my life will become, unless I change. But I love what I'm doing, so I don't change. That's all that really matters, though, isn't it? What Loving right now. No, no loving what you're doing. I would quite like to sit here now and eat cake for just shove cake in my face. I'd really like that. Is that is that a good thing to be doing?
2: Yeah, probably not. There's a little bit of forward thinking to do maybe. Yeah, exactly. So where where do micro adventures fit into all of this?
1: So micro adventures I spent a few years trying to do big, tough, difficult expeditions and after well, the, main, the main project after cycling around the world was I tried to um, go on a South Pole expedition with Ben Saunders and we were working towards that five years and in the end I had to pull out the trip, for domestic reasons and I just felt that I was not going to be able to go off to big trips again. I'd become a dad and the prospect of going to the South Pole for four months doing something that's really dangerous and being away for a very long time whilst having a young family just felt incompatible so I started trying to think how I could get some sort of the kicks of adventure without actually going off on a big trip and the other the other aspect about that time was that uh, i by now I'd built got to the point where I was earning my living from adventure so I was doing talks writing books and people were then starting to perceive me as an adventurer rather than just owl. so I realised there was this real disconnect between people who like the idea of adventure but don't do it because they think it's only for adventurers. So how can... I wanted to try and show that so normal people could also have these adventures. And in order for that to be viable, I had two options. I could either just shout at people, well, if you want an adventure, stop being so pathetic. Just sell your house, get divorced and go cycle around the world. Stop making wimpish excuses. And that's a perfectly valid way of having adventures but it's a little bit draconian so if people are thinking oh, i want adventure i want adventure i want adventure but i can't because x y and z if you want this well go and do it but it's a rather harsh way of going about it and the other option seemed to me to be to think right you've got your normal life with your family your house your work whatever um your financial and time limitations what adventure can you still do it's better to do a little bit of adventure than no adventure and so that's when I started trying to find ways of getting the thrills I had out of adventures the different aspects that I'd enjoyed but in short simple local cheap kind of ways and when I first started doing micro adventures well first of all I thought no one's going to be interested in going some bloke going off to sleep on a hill in suburbia Uh, no one's going to care about this but it kind of resonated with me and I also felt very worried that I, my image as an adventurer was going to be harmed significantly from being this tough guy who was trying to go to the South Pole to now saying, hey, let's go walk around the M25. I was, so I was quite worried about my credibility. But the interesting thing of it is, I guess, if you do something that, you, that seems really to have a good purpose to you and it excites you and you do it well, then... It can grow. And the irony now is that my book about microadventures, Sleeping on Little Hills, has sold way more copies than my four years of slogging my way around the world, which slightly annoys me, but also pleases me as well, I guess. So you think it's been successful as a concept? micro has been ridiculously successful as a concept. It's just ludicrous now how the fact that all these little trips I did, I mean, I started doing them. I walked around the M25 in... 2010, and we're still talking about this in 2018. And the Micro Adventures book I wrote is still selling well, and um, quite a lot of the work that I get to do now, quite a lot of work I do now is with brands, making films, basically, or making films with them. And essentially, all of them are trying to show the Micro idea, which is living adventurously, however you, def- however they choose to define that with some sort of normal life. So the micro-adventures thing has resonated far more than, hey, you could drag a big car across a desert or walk across India. No one cares about those things that I've done. Are you proud of it? Proud of micro-adventures? Yeah. I think micro-adventures is probably the thing that I'm most proud of in all my adventuring, really, because it actually feels useful. Cycling around the world and rowing the Atlantic were useful to me, personally, and they were fun. And I guess some people have had some vicarious enjoyment from them, but they're pretty pointless, selfish, daft, first-world, middle-class male things to be doing. Just showing...
0: you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host
1: Uh, whereas actually micro adventures has been encouraging people to change their work-life balance to get more exercise to spend more time in the outdoors to connect more deeply with their kids um, in the woods and yeah, it's, it feels like an actually useful thing to have done.
2: And you seem to care very deeply about the idea of other people going on adventures. That seems like a very important thing to you.
1: Why do you think it's important that people go on adventures? So there's two questions there. One is, one is why people should go on adventures. And the other is why I care about evangelising it. Um, and the the reason I try and do quite a lot of preaching about adventures is just because I've been so astonished about the impact it's had on my own life the um, the commitment to being healthy being fit pushing myself hard being in wild places has helped me so much personally in my confidence and my competence and general well-being so it's been and also just in terms of seeing the world and learning about the world it's been a thrill and the real, I mean, way more useful than going to university. But um, why I think oh, I've answered your question. Maybe it was only one question. <laughs> so, has adventure changed? Has adventure changed? Look, la- I'm, I'm, last night I was randomly imagining that I'd quite like to go and interview Ranald Fines and say to him what was it like to become a adventurer back in the 70s Um, and I'd really love to talk to him about that question because um, I don't think adventures change, you know, run across a desert or climb a massive mountain, that has not changed ever, go bivvy on a hilltop, Um, that's not changed and never will and that's I think one of the reasons we all love it, it's just pitting yourself against the outdoors so adventure has not changed. What has changed has been the packaging of adventure. It's become quite trendy and mainstream these days, which has been of great benefit to me in terms of trying to make it actually a job. Um, it's it's become much more people that are interested in it now. And then the other thing that has hugely changed has been the rise of the professional adventurer, with capital A, people like myself uh, who call themselves an adventurer and they essentially make their living by showing off about themselves on the internet. Do you think as a
2: result of that we're at risk of losing authentic adventure?
1: Um, I think do I think we're at risk of losing authentic adventure? We need not be. You know, anyone can decide to go on a big wall, walk to China or go to the North Pole, so I don't think the authentic adventure needs to be lost, I think far more people are interested in doing that. For example, a very good example is the Atlantic Rowing Race, which until 20-ish years ago was only, I don't know, 20, I don't know how many, dozens of hardcore, really crazy people who rode the Atlantic. Now it's a race that people do every year, and hundreds of people are doing it, so it's become much more of a normal thing to do. Um, years ago doing a marathon was the ultimate elite achievement, now now everyone does marathons and then it sort of steps up so in that sense it's great that more and more people are doing more difficult things um, the way, the, the the issue with authenticity I suspect is only relevant to those of us like you and me who are very very much immersed in this and notice it, I suspect the general public don't care at all whether someone is a social media adventurer or a real one so i suspect it's more a niche question for people like you and me and the wor in terms of authenticity the thing that i'm very careful of with myself is that i go off and i do something and i'm very conscious now that i'm having an adventure i'm up a hill i must put something about this on social media in order to show everyone what a good adventurer i am and then hopefully someone will buy my book so i'm now very conscious of doing that and I've made a huge, a very conscious decision to separate my real life, which is me doing stuff I want to, because I want to do it, with my internet online life, which involves me showing off about myself, doing not very much and pretending it's bigger. So if at the
2: end of the day, outside of making money and paying rent and all the things that professional people have to do, like the rest of us, do you think it matters whether or not an adventure is authentic if all we really care about is getting people outside
1: you know when now that i make adventure films um and also i suppose writing adventure books is quite interesting the question of what is truthful so anyone who's edited a film will know that you can very much juggle with the truth And the justification with that is that you're juggling the truth in order to get to the truth with perhaps capital letters. So when I write books, I quite often, you know, this happened on this day, this happened that day. And I quite often think, oh, if I take that from that day to that day, then it emphasises the point I'm trying to make more. So I don't think it's and I don't personally see that as lying. I just see it as moulding what happened in order to get some greater truth. And of course, that is a very grey, fuzzy area towards exaggeration and lying. And I hope that I stay on the right side of that line. Yeah, well, all films are. I mean, we're
2: telling stories in the same way that people did sat around
1: campfires. Mm. It's, it's no different. I, spe- I Most of my films I film myself. So if anyone's watched any film of mine that involves me sleeping on a hilltop and then waking up to see the view, they should know that really I got up probably set my alarm really early so I could get up for the sunrise so I could look all mindful and zen and relaxed and then film myself pretending to be asleep waking up and go is that truthful or is that ridiculous I think perhaps
2: both well it's a dramatization of the truth isn't Mm. it which is yeah storytelling so what do you think about explorers what
1: what does the word exploring and explorer do to you (laughs) um this, I struggle with the word adventurer or explorer, I, and then there's words like ad, expedition, adventure, journey, trip, holiday, and I think probably all of those things are similarish things. I never, ever have called myself an explorer because I've not explored anything. The, the planet, most of the planet's been mapped. So I think you can call yourself an explorer if you're going to space or to the deepest ocean, I suppose. Um... But in my mind, explorer is someone who's doing something actually really useful. You're going off to make a map, learn stuff, bring back knowledge. Uh, And then if you get a bit of glory on the side, so much the better. But I think essentially an explorer is someone who's doing something useful. An adventurer is, well, people like me, You're going off doing fun stuff, which other people would call holidays. But I dramatise them, call them expeditions, in order that I can make a living out of them.
2: Yeah, and so how do... I struggle with this a little bit with the world first playing into making someone an explorer. Do you think those two things sit well together?
1: I uh, I don't think a world well. So in the olden days, I think if you were the first person to discover that the north pole was just a floating bit of sea ice rather than what you know a huge chasm into an underground world, then I'd say you get both a world first unless you faked it, you get a world first and you're exploring, bringing back knowledge. So I'd say in the old days, those two had a use together. I think these days a world first generally suggests that you're in it for the sport. And your world first is either, you're either doing it because you want to win, like a sporting accomplishment, or you'll claim it a world first because you need to get publicity and bragging rights because you're trying to make it your job, I think. And what about, and maybe
2: this is a little bit of my prejudice fitting into this question, but what about everything needing to be in the name of something? Do you think that, or well, I feel as though adventure needs defending, adventure for the sake of adventure. Do you think that we lack these days an element of people just doing things because it's fun and because it's challenging?
1: Um. Well, I, I assume there's a lot, or I hope there's lots of people still doing that, but the people we hear about are people who are doing stuff in the public domain, by which I mean social media or above. And if you're going to do something on social media, I think, or in the public, there's a there's a bigger incentive for there to have to be some sort of point to it. But i I love the I love the the idea of adventure just for the sake of it, for the joy of it. In the same way that nearly everyone who learns salsa dancing is just doing it because they like it. They're not doing it because they're brilliant at it to change the world, it's just what they like. And I like going and doing stuff in the outdoors. So I don't think it has to have a label. I think people often add a label to things in order to try and get sponsorship or to try and justify what they're doing. To um, But it certainly doesn't need it. All of the trip, big trips I've done, I've raised money for charity. But I've never, ever said, I'm doing this trip for charity. Every adventure I've done I've done because I want to do it because it's cool and but if I'm gonna go cycle around the world or row an ocean I might as well raise some cash for something useful as well so I've always had that as a a tag on to it. Um, I do think anyone who flies to Antarctica to claim that they're raising awareness about climate change is being a bit daft. Um, So I think the tagging on things in that sort of sense is a bit pointless um, but on the other hand, at least they're trying to do something good. So there's no there's no harm in trying to be raising money or raising awareness. So I don't think that's an act you need to be grinding. I think you can choose another one.
2: Yeah, I think that people need to be aware of the implications of their actions. And I'm personally not that comfortable with people flying to Antarctica to try and raise awareness for climate change. Um, I'm less I'm I'm more comfortable with people flying to Antarctica to climb a mountain and just saying that that's what they're doing. But those people are being heavily criticised for just selfishly going to climb a mountain. And I worry that that's the the beginning of the
1: end of adventure. Well, I think, in a way, those people should be criticised for going all the way to Antarctica to climb a mountain, because it's really bad for the planet to fly all the way to Antarctica to climb a mountain. On the other hand, if someone said to me tomorrow, do you want to go to Antarctica to climb a mountain? I'd struggle to say no. Yeah, exactly. So... Yeah, I think all of us in the adventure world, we need to, well, we need to do two things. One is we need to, in the same way that nature programs do, you need to show the rest of the world these wonderful, wild, exciting, gorgeous places, and I suppose that's a reason to go do epic stuff in Antarctica. So you need to show the world this, but then on top of that, you need to actually be trying to be a bit of change in the world as well, I think.
2: Yeah, exactly. So with that in mind, what do you think the future of adventure Maybe, let's say, grand adventure looks like.
1: I imagine they'll be fairly similar. I mean, there's only a certain amount of wild, crazy, hard places in the planet. So I think there will be always people who want to be in the wilderness doing the big, hard, hot, cold, difficult, dangerous, scary stuff. And But I also suspect that as attitudes change, there'll be more people who are exploring close to home and looking for challenge and wilderness and solitude closer to home. And you can do that wherever you live. I think my one of the things that I've enjoyed about my micro adventures is to make me realise that Britain, which is such a crowded, boring, non wild, small, crummy little country from an adventure point of view, has pretty much satisfied my needs for, for years. There's there's everything's small and there's not huge wilderness, but there's lovely things to do here and you can push yourself hard. You know, if you, you could run, you could swim around Britain, for example, I don't think anyone would dispute. That's not an epic feat that Ross Edgley has just done close to home. Is Ross Edgley an explorer? Ross Edgley is definitely not an explorer. I'm not even sure I would count him as an adventurer. Really. I think he's more interested in sport. He's, I'd say he's more of an athlete really. Um, an endurance athlete um, interestingly he's now setting off to row the Atlantic and I'm interested to see what to to know whether he's doing that just because he wants the sporting challenge of rowing a lot or because he wants to see dolphins and look at the stars don't
2: know yeah we should probably ask him yes
1: <laughs> <laughs> so if you
2: were lucky enough to be offered the chance to go on the trip of a lifetime in a carbon neutral aeroplane wherever you wanted to go and you know, babysitting wasn't an issue, etc. What's the one trip that you'll... We all have them that we'll probably never do, but would love to do.
1: The one trip that I would like to, but probably will never do, will be a properly unsupported return journey to the South Pole. That's what I spent five years trying to do. Failed. And it's probably the biggest regret of my life to not have done that. So I'd like to do that. Why? I would like to do that journey because... I'd love to go to Antarctica. I love big, wild, empty wilderness places. Places that are properly removed from boring, normal life. There's nothing normal, 21st century, mainstream life about being in the middle of Antarctica, and I love that aspect. Um, one of the reasons that I got into travel in the first place, one of the main reasons, was from reading, reading books. And I think, well, there's two, there's two sections of good expedition books. One is climbing books, they're great, usually because people die and the other is polar literature, particularly from 100 years ago, this, the worst journey in the world era. So those books were got what got me into expeditions and I, and I love doing trips that link to some hero of mine and the third reason I'd like to go to Antarctica and do a big trip there is just for the, the physical and mental challenge of doing something really big and difficult and grinding away at one simple but difficult task, that's what I really like doing. Okay,
2: and what do you do for your trips? What satisfies the, the
1: desire to get outside these days? These days? These days my, my trips are really very short, really it's just overnight escapes now so I get my satisfaction these days from going running, running in the Lake District. I get it from um, sleeping out. I get a, I get a real adventurous joy from just sleeping in places. So in the woods, on a beach, by a river, on a hilltop, under the stars, essentially. I love that. And the third thing that uh, is a big part of my life these days is swimming, while swimming, just jumping in rivers, lakes, seas, streams. That brings me a lot of happiness. So
2: apologies in advance for this one, but... What are your hopes and dreams?
1: <laughs> my hopes and dreams are for um, world peace, uh, no more war, and just love, love and understanding. Um, they're my main hopes and dreams. And then on a personal level, um, my hopes and dreams are to, well, my ambition is to write a properly good book. That's still that's my lifetime goal, um, and and then I suppose just to try to get to a point where i feel i'm living an adventurous life and therefore that satisfies and scratches all the itches and rages and unfulfilled stuff living that but within the framework of some sort of normality and i think i think my life now of running in the hills riding my bike sleeping on hills swimming in rivers is definitely a good step in the in that direction okay and what are your fears? My fears, apart from, my fears are um, ecological disaster. Um, what else should I be fearing? That's probably it. Uh, my, my personal fears are, well, I suppose what I've always feared was getting old and looking back and regretting living a unfulfilled life i was aware probably by the time about the time i was cycling around the world i was aware that i had this incredible privilege to be healthy and educated and to have a passport that let me travel the world and to be you know have enough education so that i know i could go get a job tomorrow and i'll never starve to death and once you've got this safety blanket under you then you can go do bold daring trapeze work up above so that's that's been a huge thing that made me just think i've got to get on with my life and therefore if i get to being old and have not made the most of my potential that would be a travesty so i think that's always been my fear that time is ticking very very fast and i have a lot that i don't want to leave undone
2: okay that's hopes dreams and
1: fears (laughs) what gives you hope (laughs) what gives me hope what gives me hope um I think what gives me hope is that I've been discovering wild places in increasingly without having to go far. So I'm finding that I can get this of my time in the outdoors and my f- wilderness fix much closer to home. I think that's probably just a case of growing up and getting a bit old. For my birthday this year, I got a bird feeder, uh, which I really brings me a large amount of happiness. Because looking outside my shed window and seeing wild creatures there, I really enjoy that now. So that's a properly middle-aged thing, but I, I really like that. Um, I can't remember what the question is now. Talking about bird, my bird feeder, what gives you hope? Uh, what gives me hope? Your bird feeder is a very good answer, actually. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, that because that is a wild. They are wild creatures nature red in tooth and claw, living a wild existence. Um, And then if I can just go run up a hill and jump in a river, I'm sort of living wildly enough as well.
2: Yeah. And do you think that that young man sat on the side of Ben Nevis cradling his ice axe, eating a rotisserie chicken, would be proud of you?
1: (laughs) I think the young me would be very surprised and thrilled that I'd somehow managed to um, reach bird and middle age without having a proper job and that my job now is linked to the stuff that I loved back then which is being outdoors, um, adventure, travel books, that sort of stuff so I think he would be thrilled Um, I think given just quite how wildly angry and ambitious Um, an elitist I was back then I think he'd probably think I was a bit of a wimpish sellout but not sellout he'd think I was a bit of a wimp for not wanting to go do epic stuff now but I think overall he'd probably settle for what I've got
2: and what advice would you give to
1: him what advice I give to my younger self? You know, I think a better question than this, because people always ask this question, I think a better question is, what advice would the older you give to you today? Oh, that is good. It's really good, isn't it? It's much better. Yeah. Uh, but I'll answer your slightly inferior question before launching my own podcast. Uh, the advice I would give to my younger me, that guy, would be to go do a load of adventures because I want to do it, not because you're trying to get famous I think or get rich or not to do it for the telling so the the times that I've really enjoyed are when I'm just doing an adventure purely because I want to do that adventure the times when I've faltered from the path in the last few years is when I've tried to do projects thinking oh if I do this project people will be impressed or if I do this project I'll get rich or I'll get famous Um, and whenever I'd start doing that sort of stuff I just end up Firstly, I end up not doing it something good, and secondly, I end up not being very happy. Okay. Last question. What's the best thing you've ever written? The best thing I've ever written? It's pretty much, well, without exception, every book I've written, I never really look at again because it just annoys me that it's not good. I think that's probably a fairly common thing. However... Last week, for something I'm doing, I had to reread my Microadventures book, and that is a seriously good book. I was really, really impressed with how good that book is. It is so thorough, <laughs> and it really is very good. Um, but the book I'm probably most proud of is the book that I wrote about walking across India, called There Are Other Rivers, which I, I was going through a bit of a phase then. I wanted to stand or fall totally by myself, so I wrote it myself, edited it myself published it myself no one in the world saw any of it till the day it was for sale and i really liked that of this is what i my best shot if it's good that's down to me if it's rubbish that's also down to me so i really liked. i'm proud of that book as a exercise in vulnerability i have now looked back on it and i've realized why it's also good to work with other people and and collaborate and an editor would certainly have helped the book but i'm very proud of it brilliant thank you very much thank you
2: Thank you for listening. For more information on Al Humphreys, head to theadventurepodcast.co.uk and check out the show notes. Terra Incognita is produced by Coldhouse in association with Sidetrack magazine. I've been a huge fan of Sidetrack for years and each edition is more like a coffee table book than a magazine. At the studio, there's always an edition or two floating around and they're a constant source of inspiration. Check it out at sidetrack.com. And finally, this podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced by Pip Saunders and Tom Carr-Griffin. All three of us spend a lot of time hunting for stories of people operating both above and below the radar, and we'd love to hear from you if you think there's anyone we should be talking to. Please feel free to send us an email at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk.